Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, I'm in conversation with the particle physicist Dave Newbold, who is Executive Director for National Laboratories, Science and Technologies for the UK's SDFC. But first, a word from our sponsor. The Electrochemical Society, founded in 1902, encourages you to participate in the leading conference dedicated to electrochemistry and solid-state science. The Society is hosting their 245th ECS meeting in San Francisco, California, from May the 26th to the 30th, 2024. ECS events are the premier space for you to present your latest research, to network, and to advance the science of sustainability. ECS meetings and conferences welcome experts in academia, industry, and government to build connections, to advance fundamental research, and to inform applied sciences. Abstract submission is open until December 1st, 2023. Visit electrochem.org forward slash 245 to learn more and submit your abstract today. Recently, I traveled to the Rutherford Appleton Lab, which is about 60 miles west of London in the bucolic Oxfordshire countryside. The lab is one of 10 national labs operated by the UK's Science and Technology Facilities Council, or SDFC. And I met Dave Newbold, who oversees all of these facilities. Here is that conversation. Hi, Dave. Welcome to the podcast. So what does your new role entail? This is a fantastic job, actually. Um, it's one of the best jobs in the UK. So, so, so I am executive director of the National Laboratories um, for STFC. Uh, as many of your listeners are, listeners are going to know, um, we host the big facilities that facilitate UK science. Uh, we're also the people who build the big detectors you've seen at CERN. We build telescopes. Um, we are the National Centre for Quantum Computing. We do lots and lots of things across the, uh, the patch. My job is to make sure that using all of those facilities and all that investment, um, that we're delivering science and technology outcomes. Um, so I am a, a scientist. Uh, I oversee scientists and engineers here. And we've got to make sure they're all working together to deliver the STFC strategy for UK physics. Right. And j- just um, with regards to what a national lab is, we're here in Harwell in Oxfordshire, and we've got Rutherford Appleton. That's one of the labs that we have here. We've got ISIS, Diamond, have I missed out on anything? It's complicated. So, so number one is uh, you're sitting here in Oxfordshire, but uh, this is just one of our sites. Um, so we've also got Darsbury Laboratory, which is up in Warrington. We've got the UK Astronomy Technology Centre in Edinburgh. Um, and we've got a very special laboratory underground in North Yorkshire at Bulby. Uh, and we have other smaller sites. In addition to that, of course, we run a whole bunch of international sites. So we're deeply involved in CERN, in ILL, and many others as well. So, so it's complicated. Um, Harwell's a big place. Uh, Rutherford Laboratory is just a small part of it. 
but actually that's what makes it exciting because we've got a whole bunch of industry here. We've got other facilities like Diamond. You know, we can exchange research results with those, exchange people. Uh, it, it, it's a really interesting place to be. It's the hub of physical sciences for the UK. So this morning uh, at Harwell, I had a great tour. I saw I saw ISIS, which is neutrons and muons. I saw, uh, well, the National Quantum Computing Center. Is that right? That's right. Uh, and Diamond, of course, is a synchrotron. Can, can you give us uh, an idea of, of the breadth of research that's done in the national labs? Uh, in, in one minute, no, because because it's enormous. Um, yeah, I mean, it divides into three parts, essentially. And we have the big national and international facilities here. So that's the ISIS neutron and muon source, as you've seen. It's the central laser facility, which has the some of the biggest lasers, the most powerful lasers in the world. Um, one of the things you didn't see was the National Satellite Test Facility, which is across the road, where we can put whole satellites and shake them and bake them, and it's a fantastic facility. Uh, and so these are things which which hundreds or thousands of users per year come in and, and do experiments on. Um, but in addition to that, we've got really big technical capabilities. So we have a very large engineering department. Um, we have some of the biggest computing systems in the UK here as well. Um, and we have others at Darsby Laboratory of a similar type. Um, and we can build accelerators. We can build particle physics experiments. So we can build detectors for those facilities we've just talked about. So we have a really strong engineering base. And then the third arm of it is we have our, our scientists on site. Um, so in our particle physics division uh, in Edinburgh at the Astronomy Centre. And they are really there to make sure that where the engineering meets the science, those things are delivered properly. So when you set out to build a, a really big new experiment for an international facility, it requires engineering. Yes, it requires technical staff. It requires computing. It requires scientists. All of those things have to be put together and project managed. So that's, again, is a sort of third arm of what we do. It's, it's facilitating UK science for our customers in the universities. And, and speaking of what's new, what is new, Dave? What, oh, what are boy. some of the new things so, that you're um, working on? So if you don't come to this lab for about five years, uh, everybody says the same thing when they arrive, which is, wow, it looks completely different. So you may have noticed a lot of the buildings on the way in are, are completely new. Um, there are things springing up left, right and centre that are going to deliver new capacity and new capability for the UK. So I'll, I'll mention a few new things in addition to the things I've already mentioned. So. Over here, we have the um, Extreme Photonics Application Center, EPAC, which is going to take the applications of laser plasma interactions to, to the next level. So we're going to start producing particle beams, which we traditionally use accelerators for, um, using lasers. And that, that's that's a really new step forward. So this is this yep. laser wakefield This is laser wakefield acceleration, right. exactly, yeah. Um, we have got the National Quantum Computing Center, which at the moment is a building that's still having the carpets and uh, paint put on it. Um, but that, again, is going to facilitate a whole bunch of applications of quantum computing, not just by us, but by industry and by university users as well. <clears throat> we have got uh, new computing centers, uh, which are going up uh, all over the place. That is actually not driven by the big international research like the existing facilities. It's driven by what we need to do on site here. So as we are carrying out future upgrades of the light source, of the neutron source, of the laser facility, the amount of data we're going to produce from those is going to become almost LHC-like. And so we need new computing facilities of a new type to, to facilitate that. And if we could uh, get a telescope out and see what's happening up at Darsbury, um, you, know, you will see new things being done there. So, for instance, we have a whole factory which is being built there to produce the instrumentation for the Dune neutrino experiment in the US that's going to look for CP violation in the neutrino sector. So there's a whole bunch of new things going on. 
In addition to that, we've got big plans for the future. Um, so I've just been briefing our governing body on our plans for Bulby Laboratory, uh, where we're proposing a really big new development in the northeast of England. So, so that's an underground That is facility. a huge new underground facility, uh, which will enable us to take research for dark matter to the next level, but also conduct research into the kinds of quantum technologies that require a very clean environment. So we don't want cosmic rays, we don't want radioactivity. We can do all of those things underground. Uh, that's what we're proposing to government for Bulby Laboratory. That's not just a scientific investment, that's also a regional investment, because at the moment, uh, the area where Bulby is in, in Teesside, uh, it's not somewhere where STFC has a big footprint. And uh, we'd like to change that. So this is the, uh, the government's agenda on, on place. Right. And th these are national labs. But one thing that I noticed as I was having my tour this morning is that there's a lot of international collaboration going yeah. on. I, I, I was talking to some people about um, making the targets for neutrino, you know, to create neutrinos. That's a speciality here in, as well. That's right. Yes. In so, Japan and, <clears throat> and also in, in the US. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, so to some extent, you know, we're in demand from international partners. We have specific capabilities like the target production, like the uh, production of certain types of lasers um, that other labs around the world will use. So we, we can supply them with our, our technology. But more than that, I mean, if you're doing one of these really big experiments in science, um, these things are intrinsically international. I mean, it requires the, the talents from all around the world to come and, and, and come together to deliver those experiments. So the sort of model we've used in particle physics and astronomy for quite a long time now, uh, you know, of international collaboration is now being applied across a whole bunch of, of different areas. Um, so, yeah, almost everything we do is international in some respects. Uh, and then, of course, that's not just what we do within the labs. Uh, we also fund international institutions like, like CERN, for instance, and we fund uh, university researchers to go out and use those things. So we're a sort of gatekeeper for those resources, but also we're supplying a lot of the, the technical apparatus which sits there. Yeah. And, and how important are international visiting scientists? Is, is that an important aspect of what it, you do? It is a really important aspect on the user facilities. So, so uh, again, we have unique capabilities in the UK that international scientists want to come and use. The demand for the facilities is overwhelming. Uh, I mean, we could fill these things several times over with, with, with good science. Um, and so we do try to support the international community as well as the national community. Um, what I think, actually, is we should be doing more of that. Uh, and as we start to talk about the new facilities we want to bring up in various areas, I think we've got to design those, yes, to attract international users, but also to attract international investment. So if we're building something which is at the level of tens or hundreds of millions of pounds, you know, in some cases, they're, they're globally unique facilities. We're looking to international partners to come in and actually uh, cooperate with us to deliver those in the UK making sure the UK gets both the scientific and, and the economic benefits. Hmm. So is, is that a way that the, the UK, which I suppose is sort of a medium-sized rich economy, is that how we get great facilities, great national facilities? Well, I, think, I, think, I think the um, the national agenda has been made pretty clear by, by the minister. So, so, you know, we may not be a medium-sized economy, but we don't want to be a medium-sized scientific player, that, that's for sure. Uh, I mean, the jargon sometimes used is science superpower. I think we are a science superpower, but, but in order to keep that status, you, you've got to have a strong research base uh, of people, but you've also got to have the facilities and the capabilities. So, so we're responsible for both aspects of that, essentially. Um, you know, being a science superpower means being willing to invest and willing to share the results of that investment with international partners. And I think you can see around you at the lab, that's, that's definitely happening. It needs to happen more in the future. And And what does that mean in terms of 
deciding what sort of facilities we build in the future. Is the UK, I mean, would you recommend that the country go with its strengths and continue to build on those strengths? Or or do we need to, to take new opportunities? I suppose quantum is the, a well, classic this, example yeah, of that. This, 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 this is the art of, of managing the scientific program. Um, I think it's got to be some aspects of both. I mean, clearly um, the need for basic facilities like light sources, neutron sources, is, is not going to go away. I mean, those uh, facilities are delivering incredibly valuable results across a whole bunch of disciplines, uh, you know, in biology and material science, as well as in physics. So that's not going away. But on the other hand, you can't ignore the new. Uh, and in particular, I think the, obviously, the quantum technologies uh, and AI both offer ways of doing similar science in a more productive way or with a similar level of investment, getting, getting more science out. So certainly we're investing in those. We do try to keep a balanced portfolio on those things. And the other thing which is interesting about STFC, I think, is we are prepared to take some risks. Uh, so science doesn't always pan out. So sometimes I think you've got to take a chance. Um, when we make that kind of decision, we're very much driven by the, the user community, by the scientific community. You know, We receive proposals as a funding agency. We consider those proposals objectively on, on their merits. And then we make a prioritization internally. And again, we want a good balance of things which we, we know are going to pan out and things which actually is a little bit of a risk but might deliver some really exciting results. Mm. Has a, a national quantum computing center, has that been a bit of a, a shift? Because, you know, I suppose traditionally when you think about national labs, you think about big facilities like a synchrotron or a reactor that, that you wouldn't maybe have at a, at a university. But quantum is, is, is almost the opposite, isn't it? I mean... You can build a well a quantum computer in in a lab with a you know one principal investigator at a university. How, you can how build do you... you can build a small quantum computer in a lab with one principal investigator. But but I think what's becoming clear is that you know if the UK wants to harness all of the opportunity of quantum computing, um, you're going to need a few things in play. You're going to need a research base. You're going to need an industrial supply chain and companies who can actually produce these things commercially in the future. And you're going to need uh, a means of matching up the, the user community, so the people who want to run the, the quantum software with the people who can provide the hardware. And, and in all of those things, you know, our job is to facilitate. So our job is to, is to matchmake between industry, academic community, quantum researchers themselves, and a wider academic community that will use those facilities. And that's what the National Quantum Computing Center is for. So it doesn't necessarily have to have uh, something the size of a particle accelerator there. It will have quantum computing hardware on site, um, and it will be working with industry to deliver that, but it's effectively a, a convening center for that national discussion. So Dave, your background is in particle physics. That's right. Is it CMS that you worked on at CERN? That, that was the experiment right? at CERN so, I worked on, yes. So you, you, you helped discover the Higgs? Is that uh, right? I was a part happen? of a very large team of people that discovered the Higgs, that's right, <laughs> yes, but I, I played my part. Well, that's great. <laughs> c congratulations on that. I wanted, you know, finally to to ask you about the, the future of particle physics. I know that's a, that's a big, it's a big topic and a big question, but um, at some point CERN, or the LHC, which is, I suppose, the world's premier particle collider, will come to the end of its lifetime, probably in the, in the middle of this century, maybe. What do you see as happening after that? I mean, I suppose there's a few options being bandied around, a, an even larger version of the LHC, or maybe a linear collider. What, yeah, how do you see things going? I mean, so when we start this conversation, I always say the same thing, which is just remember that the LHC has only delivered you know, less than 10% of the data set so far. 
So there's plenty of things waiting in the LHC data to, to, to be measured, discovered perhaps. Um, so, you know, we're not done yet on that. There's plenty of life left in the LHC. And of course, the, the big upgrade of the LHC and its experiments is, is really physically going into place only in a couple of years from now. And, and we'll be back for another run. So, so hold that thought. On the new facilities, I think the, I mean, you're right, it's a really exciting time for the field. I mean, there is a broad consensus um, as to what we should do next. Um, I mean, we've discovered the Higgs boson, we've measured certain of its properties and certain of its interactions in, in detail. You can only get so far with the LHC because it is a it is a proton-proton machine, it's a messy experimental environment. So I think there is a consensus that the next step is to build an electron-positron collider. Um, as you say, there's a whole bunch of technical proposals on the table for that. Um, you know, when we look at making decisions, both in particle physics and more broadly in STFC, about where our investment's going to go, you know, there's a few questions we ask. Uh, I mean, one question is clearly about the scientific potential, the scientific excitement of a specific proposal. Another question is about can it be delivered um, for a reasonable cost in a reasonable time frame? And I think now there's a third question which is coming in as well about the environmental sustainability of these. And that obviously is going to be a huge challenge for any new particle collider that people propose. So I think we're not at the point yet where we're going to make that decision. I think we're going to challenge all of these projects on all three of those camps. Uh, and I think the evidence is now starting to come in actually to show us which direction we should go in. So in particular, the, the FCC, which is the proposal for a 100-kilometer collider at CERN, you know, we're going to see the output of uh, the mid the midterm output of its feasibility study in just a few months from now, and I think that's going to be really exciting. It might show us actually what the direction to go in is. What so else? would that be the hundred yeah. kilometer? That would be a hundred kilometer tunnel under uh, in, Lake Geneva. In, under Lake Geneva, yeah. but initially used for electron-positron collisions. Uh, later on, uh, used for proton-proton collisions at higher energy. But I think it, it goes without saying, I mean, there's huge challenges in delivering uh, an infrastructure at that scale. Uh, it's not going to happen tomorrow. I think we've got to be realistic about it. So the electron-positron collisions, is that is that the, the Higgs factory? Yeah, that's the Higgs factory. So so, so, with, um, so to get a little bit technical for a moment, I mean, with, with, with protons, you, you have a very um, broad range of collision energies. So, so you will occasionally produce Higgs bosons, uh, but most of the time you'll, you'll produce other things which are less interesting. Um, electrons and positrons are point-like particles, so you can tune the energy of the beam very precisely to make sure that you are selectively producing Higgs bosons. And then, of course, you can get a much larger sample. That means you can measure the properties of the Higgs and its interactions in, in much more detail. So, so it's a much better place to do that detailed physics following on from the discovery. And this is not a new concept in particle physics. We've, we've, we've always done things that way with uh, different kinds of colliders, looking at different aspects of the uh, situation. Uh, just let me mention one other thing, which, um, you know, the other thing we're seeing now is there's a lot of new ideas coming up, um, some of which will improve the performance of those future machines, um, some of which could give the same performance, but with a greater degree of uh, environmental sustainability. Um, so we're actually very keen to make sure that R&D continues. Uh, the designs of those machines isn't finalized yet. Um, so we're quite keen to see how we can carry on thinking uh, rather than spending. And, and actually, maybe we will get more performance for our money than we originally thought. So it is a really exciting time. And so where is that R&D done? Is that mostly done at universities by particle physicists or would it be done here by it's a big mixture. accelerator and detector Yeah, it's a big mixture. I mean, if you're going to design a, a machine to deliver science, you need the input of particle physicists and the input of accelerator designers. Um, but a lot of it is actually it's, it's technical research. It's, it's about materials. It's about uh, systems. It's about cryogenics. 
Uh, it's about investigating new ways of capturing and recovering the energy which you put into the beam. So rather than uh, accelerating the beam, then the energy is dissipated. You accelerate the beam, you use it for physics, and then you recover the energy to use again. And obviously, uh, energy recovery is, is one route to net zero. Um, it, it's an exceptionally valuable piece of research, potentially. So, so we're keen on that. It's going to take a while to pan out. These things take time. So, so from an energy point of view, what is best, a, a, a circular collider or a linear collider? Or may, maybe they're about the same in terms that's, of that, 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 That's a very complicated question. <laughs> and the answer, of course, it depends how you, how you quantify it. Um, it depends on what your physics uh, goals are, and it depends on how you plan to operate the machine. So, so it, it's not possible to give a simple answer to that question, and that, of course, is at the crux of the debate. So, uh, more work needed. You know, one thing we do want to do, and one thing we're actually cooperating with other labs in Europe in doing, is making sure that when new facilities of any type are proposed, we've got a clear view of what the sustainability criteria and sustainability performance of those facilities will be. And with that, we're working with industry as well. So, so actually, uh, keeping it all transparent and making sure we really understand what we're getting into for the future, I think I think that's the key to those decisions. And and looking uh, beyond accelerators and colliders, are are there any um, other sort of experiments? I mean, you mentioned Bulby, for example, yep. that could reveal secrets beyond the standard model without having to smash. So, so, so exactly. Together. So, I think if you ask a particle physicist what the what the you know the biggest next next mystery to be solved is, it's, it's clearly around dark matter, um, and we have lots and lots of evidence that dark matter exists from from astronomy. Uh, we we can practically see it through gravitational lensing, and yet if you try to investigate on Earth what this stuff is, you you, you don't have a result. Um, so, the direct detection of dark matter, in other words, waiting for it patiently to interact with matter, and then you see a signature of that. Um, that is what's in progress now. Um, there are experiments running, which we are hopeful will tell us a lot more about that. And we know that we'll need a new generation of experiments uh, beyond that as well. Uh, a lot of that technology was actually invented in the UK uh, at Bulby Lab. It's now being used in, uh, in Italy, in the US, in China to do those experiments. We would really like to bring that back at a bigger scale and see the, the great global dark matter observatory being delivered in the northeast of England at Bulby. And, and I think really that could be a game changer for physics if, uh, if that pays off. But of course, it's science. We don't know what dark matter really is. Um, there may be no guaranteed result from that. In addition, though, there's a whole bunch of other new techniques coming up which are fascinating, and most of these use uh, quantum technologies. Um, so something I've been involved in as a researcher in the past is the use of um, very cold atoms um, in, to make interference patterns. Uh, this is something you learn about as an undergraduate in your physics degree, uh, but you don't see it actually being used in the technology. Well, now it is. So using these um, cold atom interferometers, you can make instruments which are incredibly sensitive to vibrations and distortions of all types. And that means you can deliver a single instrument that in principle is sensitive to gravitational waves and dark matter in the same instrument. That's a fantastic new development. Again, in its infancy, it will take some time, but we're looking at things that in 30 or 40 years could, could really revolutionize physics. I mean, do you, do you think in the future, because of course, you know, the, the next generation collider will cost a huge amount of money. Do you think maybe at that point, physicists will have been so clever with these precision experiments that we'll think, well, we, we don't need a collider anymore. We can, we can measure quantum interference or we can measure wobbling neutrons and that'll tell us more about what's beyond the standard model than smashing I, particles together. There is an aspect of that, but I think um, at the moment you're still going to require complementary techniques. I mean, there are things which are accessible to precision experiments 
which you couldn't do at colliders and, and, and vice versa. Certainly, I like to see people being clever rather than just sort of reaching for their wallet immediately. But but we've got to be realistic. I mean, you know, big science requires big infrastructure, requires substantial investment. On the other hand, these investments are worldwide investments. I mean, the one thing we know about the next big particle physics machine is it's going to be an international global machine. Um, if you look at the level of investment uh, as a single number, it looks very large. I think if you divide it over all of the countries in the world that might be interested to participate, and, and then you realize it's quite an investment over a period of time, actually it's comparable to other things that we do at a national scale. So I'm optimistic we will be able to put that together. Of course, coordinating a major global project is, is really hard, but we've got evidence it can be done because the Square Kilometre Array, um, big radio telescope in South Africa, the UK and, uh, and um, Australia, uh, that has been brought together. Uh, it will be in operation in a few years' time. And so these global collaborations can be built, can be done. Okay. Well, that's great, Dave. Thanks for talking to Physics World. Thank you. Quasi-particles are collective excitations in solid materials that behave much like particles. An example familiar to listeners who have studied semiconductor physics are quasi-particles called holes, which are absences of electrons that behave like positively charged particles. Without doubt, my favorite quasi-particle is the skirmion, which occurs in some magnetic materials. The skirmion was first proposed in 1961 by the British physicist Tony Skirm, and his idea is that a skirmion was an elementary particle. It was created to describe nucleons, which are protons or neutrons, in terms of meson fields, his goal being a unified description of physics that does not require both boson and fermion fields. Unfortunately, Skirm's approach did not bear fruit, and the skirmion fell into obscurity before it was revived in the past few decades by physicists who study magnetic materials. Magnetic skirmions are quasi-particles that are vortices, and they're created by the collective behavior of many quantum spins. A key feature of these vortices is that they are self-reinforcing, which means that they endure as particle-like entities that can travel through a material. These properties mean that skirmions could form the basis for data storage systems that offer much higher information densities and lower energy requirements than existing technologies. However, much more research must be done before skirmion-based memories could be a reality. One problem is that skirmions tend to travel in circles rather than in straight lines. Now, researchers in Japan have created a special layered material in which two magnetic skirmions can be coupled together in an antiferromagnetic configuration. This allows the coupled skirmions to move through the material in straight lines about 10 times faster than single skirmions, which is something that could be useful in creating skirmion-based devices. You can read more about this research in an article on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Tailored Material Makes Speedier Skirmions. Coming up on the 14th of November, Physics World and Sun Nuclear are bringing you a webinar on the quality assurance of MRI-guided radiotherapy systems. 
It'll be presented by Stephanie Tanadini-Lang, who is co-vice chair of the Department of Radiation Oncology at University Hospital Zurich in Switzerland. Stephanie will address the unique challenges and considerations that MRI-guided radiotherapy systems quality assurance presents. From image distortion and system calibration to complex workflows, understanding and mitigating these challenges is vital for every healthcare professional working with MRI-guided radiotherapy systems. Moreover, the webinar will delve into well-established quality assurance protocols and procedures that are tailored specifically to MRI-guided radiotherapy systems. The webinar is free of charge thanks to the sponsorship of Sun Nuclear. You can register for it on the Physics World website. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society. Thanks to Dave Newbold for joining me, and a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester speaks to two physicists who are working to overcome inequality in society. They look at how international policymaking can be strengthened by the contribution of more people with backgrounds in fundamental science, and how patterns in consumer energy usage can be used to reveal local inequalities. That episode is called Physics for Fairness, Tackling Global Sustainability Challenges Through Science, and it can be found on the Physics World website and at your favorite podcast provider. The Electrochemical Society, founded in 1902, encourages you to participate in the leading conference dedicated to electrochemistry and solid-state science. The Society is hosting their 245th ECS meeting in San Francisco, California, from May the 26th to the 30th, 2024. ECS events are the premier space for you to present your latest research, to network, and to advance the science of sustainability. ECS meetings and conferences welcome experts in academia, industry, and government to build connections, to advance fundamental research, and to inform applied sciences. Abstract submission is open until December 1st, 2023. Visit electrochem.org forward slash 245 to learn more and submit your abstract today. Physics World.